Once again, good morning, everybody. We are glad that you're here today or that you're joining us online. Uh, thanks for uh, worshiping with us. And I uh, just want to remind you, if you uh, haven't made preparations yet, either inside the room here at the back table, there are communion cups, or if you are at home and um, can make preparation either with some bread, uh, some water, some juice, or uh, to even uh, just put in the back of your mind to do that a little bit later uh, today as a family, uh, to spend time together in communion. And communion has been uh, different since last March, Um, not the same, not the same mechanism, not the same way of doing it. And uh, I know at times there have been very meaningful moments of being able to have family communion in a living room or um, other experiences that we've had. And then sometimes we just can't wait to the point where we can get back, where we're walking down to the front and you're taking the piece of bread and, you know, having a chance to, to kneel, which, which, by the way, you could still come up and, and kneel if you want to, if you were here inside the room. But uh, we trust that God meets us in the midst of the elements of communion each and every month when we do that, um, even though it might look a little bit different. On that note, let me just let you know that when it comes to April, uh, we are going to have a Monday Thursday service that you'll be getting more information about later, and that is where we'll do communion for the month of April, uh, because the first Sunday of April is Easter, so we will not be doing communion on Easter Sunday morning. Throughout the course of uh, these weeks as we head towards Easter, we've been thinking about this idea of the way of the cross, that we know the cross is the central uh, salvific moment. It's, it's the, the way of salvation. There is no other way. Uh, what Jesus did on the cross, you know, was it's the transforming uh, moment inside of human history uh, between the, the cross and the resurrection. Uh, what is transformed inside of our eternity, what is transformed inside of the reality of our lives. Uh, everything looks different because of the cross. But as we've been mentioning, you know, throughout the past couple of weeks, and we use the imagery of, of kind of like a kaleidoscope, Uh, The New Testament writers purposely use different metaphors and different analogies, different descriptors to describe what actually happens in the cross. And so uh, we've, you know, kind of highlighted these and we said we're going to take, you know, one or two of them each week between now and and Easter. But like inside of scripture, again, it it seems like, you know, if um, the early church got together and they said that, you know, for the point of clarity this is how we're going to talk about the cross. They didn't. Instead, there are legal images, and there's, you know, Old Testament uh, suffering in uh, imagery, images. There's sacrificial imagery. There's, you know, kind of commerce, redemption, you know, paid with a price. And there's all these different things. And we said that no one image, no one metaphor would be sufficient to fully explain. And, and you know that anytime you use a metaphor, there is a breakdown. It can only go so far before the metaphor fails to adequately describe what it is pointing towards. And so inside the New Testament, you know, it takes a variety of metaphors. And even then, I think I would echo the words of people who have written and people who have preached down through the centuries. Even then, we cannot fully exhaust the meaning, the application, the significance of the cross. So what we want to do is to not just talk about the cross generally, or talk about the cross through events, uh, but to actually take these and actually try to plumb just a little bit deeper, if we can, during our time together to talk about how does the cross work? What does it accomplish? What did the cross do? And what does the, the cross currently do and accomplish inside of our lives? 
How do we make sense of these various angles that they go together? And almost, again, like a kaleidoscope, like it becomes just like an emerging picture and a series of pictures that explain the vantage point of what Jesus did for us. So the first week we talked, we kind of introduced this idea and we said that there was no other way uh, that that inside the cross we have the way of salvation that that was laid open for us. Last week we jumped in and we we grabbed the the language of reconciliation and also, uh, you know, the the language of family, and inside of those two talked about uh, that even though it seems somewhat elementary, that the family language, that the reconciliation language is the primary way that we talk about our relationship with Christ. But after we grow into our young adulthood and adulthood, it doesn't continue to be the way that we talk about the cross. So, so for, for instance, that familial language, you know, we'll talk about, you know, that we are children of God. We'll talk about that we belong to Christ, that we know Christ, that we, that we walk with Christ. We use that kind of relational language in how we talk about the Christian life. But it seems as if when you really want to describe the dimension of the cross, we kind of leave that language behind and, pref- you know, prefer some of the other deeper or more symbolic language. But as we highlighted last week, at the heart of what uh, Jesus did for us was the goal from the very beginning was to restore a relationship between a broken people and a holy God. And so it's always been relational. God's desire was not just to to simply put a structure in place to forgive sins, but to reestablish a relationship with his people that there could be closeness where there was distance, where there could be intimacy, where there was, you know, at, at one time even animosity or or just distance inside of our relationship with God. So we began with the relational thing. Today I want to swing almost to the opposite extreme and talk about maybe some of the most difficult language there is when we think about the cross. If the relational language, one of the the temptations is that we leave it behind because it seems so elementary, the language we're going to talk about today is the language that, that fills your Old Testament, and it's the language of sacrifice and suffering. We know it to be the case. We read the verses and we kind of know it as a backdrop, but sometimes we either fail to understand it or don't necessarily care to fully understand what takes place in and through that imagery because there's blood, there's violence, there's death, there's a lot of animals, uh, you know, that kind of go in as a part of that. And at sometimes, you know, the imagery of that has turned people off towards Christianity At times, it just becomes symbolic for us, almost as though, well, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, but, you know, there's kind of, you know, the the symbolism of that is what's most important. We tend to dismiss it as though maybe it was just a less civilized time, but the reality is the Old Testament backdrop that sets up the reality for what Jesus came to do, and then again, the New Testament writers who pick up on that Old Testament imagery provide some powerful insights into what happens in the cross and why Jesus died. So I want to turn your attention to a passage and uh, a little bit lengthier. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open them probably, or if not, you can follow along with the nine or ten slides that are about to follow. Uh, But inside of the book of Hebrews, um, oftentimes it's been said that if you try, try to match up Old Testament books and New Testament books, the book of Leviticus goes with the book of Hebrews. 
Now, Leviticus is probably not one of your favorite books, but I think in the New Testament, Hebrews is one of also the most overlooked books. But there's so much richness there about uh, sacrifice, about Jesus as the high priest, about, you know, tying in, again, some of that Old Testament imagery to what Jesus came to do for us. And so you get to Hebrews chapter 10, and, uh, you know, the writer of, of Hebrews wants to make sense again for us what took place in and through the cross. Um, again, as it applies inside of some of those Old Testament symbols and, and um, rituals and things that have taken place. He begins and he says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, but not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here am I. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had um, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless lawless acts I will remember no more. And where they have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Again, one of the the difficulties of the book of Hebrews, and you kind of sense it in that passage, is there's so much richness and reference and, you know, kind of assumption of understanding that sometimes we get lost in the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you were to ask people what their favorite passage of the book of Hebrews, they probably almost everybody you would ask would go to that Hall of Fame chapter of faith. You know, that in, in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, by faith and goes down through the Old Testament. That's the main part of Hebrews that we know and understand because, it, again, it is so thick and so rich with some of that Old Testament imagery. But the writer here wants to tap into the fact that inside of this system and this large system that had, had been put in place, and, and by system I, I don't mean anything that's, you know, corrupt or anything that is, you know, overly holy. It's just a system. But 
you know, the law that then, you know, gave birth to, to the, the tabernacle and to the temple makes it possible for an unholy people to relate to a holy God. It provides a way for a God who is transcendent, who is other than, who is perfect, to interact with the people who are imperfect and unholy. And so this, this temple system that's put into place where offerings are commanded and as many as, you know, four to even as many as ten, if you break down specific ones, different offerings were brought regularly by the people to make atonement for sin or, or to give thanks and praise to God. And instead of this offering system creates the backdrop then that when Jesus comes, that no longer is necessary because in him you, fu- you find the one who is the perfect sacrifice, the one who can fully and permanently take away sin. I just want to recap for you as we you know, kind of journey through this together a little bit about the Old Testament, uh, what the, mechan- the mechanics and kind of the system, the meaning of, of sacrifice inside of the Old Testament. You know, it begins on the first couple of pages of Scripture that when a- Adam and Eve, uh, you know, find themselves in sin and disobedience to God, and then there is shame that begins to come as a result of that. And so in the cool of the evening, when God would walk uh, and talk with them, they are hiding and he says, why are you hiding? And you know, eventually, you know, it comes out and it's discovered about their sin. And one of the, the closing uh, elements of that conversation is uh, that there are animal skins that are prepared so that they can no longer hide in shame, that there is a covering for sin. The first time you have a sacrifice inside of the Old Testament is, again, the fact that there are uh, one animal, two animals, you know, that have to die in order for the guilt and the shame and the distance between Adam, Eve, and God to be closed happens through the death of an animal. That's one of the the subtle things, but then it begins to go on, you know, from there. And the idea of sacrifice was common inside of the ancient world, but for most other religions, it was to kind of appease the gods, to make the gods happy, to, you know, almost manipulate the gods into doing what you wanted them to do. But inside of the Old, Old Testament, Uh, It is all about, again, relationship and connection between an unholy people and a holy God. Because you see, there's only a few options of, of how to bridge that gap. Either God has to relinquish his holiness, and you have, again, in other ancient, you know, religions, the gods were sometimes just as vile, just as deceitful, just as corrupt as people. Because if we're going to live inside of relationship, either God has to relinquish his holiness, Or, again, the distance has to be maintained because how can an unholy people relate to a holy God? Maybe he has to change the rules of what it looks like to relate, what it looks like to be in right relationship. Or he's got to do something to deal with the gap that remains between us and him. And so specifically inside of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, though imperfect, though you know, a a shadow, though something that was meant to be symbolic of something that would later happen internally, allows that reconnection, the repair inside of a relationship between God and his people. It was meant to do a couple of key things. One is to, yes, repay the debt, to cleanse the guilt, to, you know, somehow, you know, bring people back into a relationship with God, but it was also meant to be a deterrent from sin, to close the distance inside of relationship, 
And so inside of, you know, those moments, there's one, I think, you know, idea in particular, there's one event in particular that one day a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there were a couple key things that happened that I think become symbolic of this whole temple system and the idea of sacrifice. You have, uh, first of all, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. One man, one day a year, to make intercession for the people. And if the Holy of Holies was that kind of inner sanctum inside of the temple, and that's where the presence of God resides, and the Ten Commandments and the mercy seat and and these these articles, you know, these artifacts really that point to uh, the Hebrew God, that was the one room that was off limits to everybody all the time except for one priest one day a year. And so the book of Hebrews picks up on that, that we now have that final one priest that at one point in time took care of that which we could not do for ourselves. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies. The second thing that happens on the Day of Atonement is you have a scapegoat. And a scapegoat has been something we've taken down, we've applied that term to modern culture, somebody who takes the fall for somebody else. But the scapegoat, literally, there, there was a goat and... And people would lay, you know, the priests would lay their hands upon him. And it was almost like upon this goat became all the guilt of all the people. A representative, if you will, that somehow sins could be taken away. And we could be in right relationship with a clean slate with God. Again, when you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you read, you know, passages throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and at times, there, again, there's so much burning, and there's so much blood, and there's so many animals, and there's so many different, you know, different offerings at different times, and it seems so far from where we live. But I want you to know that from the very beginning, it was all for, again, the purpose of relationship. And we may not be able to wrap, wrap our minds around it, you know, being, you know, two millennia, you know, later, you know, from that. But there's this mixture, there's this contrast that takes place that even inside of this system, there is justice and at the same time, love. That God makes possible a way to to make things right, but also restore relationship. Grace and holiness at the same time, that, that the standards of God are not lowered, they're not ignored. But at the same time, there could be grace that's shown to his people. There's consequence for sin, and at the same time, there's a God who is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in mercy. There's severity. There's one thing that you would say that, you know, inside of the whole temple system and and all the different laws and, and rules and ritual, it communicates that there is a severity to our sin, that we don't take sin lightly. And yet at the same time, there's a tenderness and an openness of our God. And I think when, when you read through this, you would not necessarily read through your Old Testament and see this. But when you think of the purpose of, of why these things are in place and, and why these avenues are created, and even the difference between you know, Old Testament Judaism and the other ancient religions, you see that even before you get to Jesus and the New Testament, you see something about the character and the heart of God. And that 
both of these things, you know, inside of each set of phrases, both can be true. And I wonder, even inside of your life and my life and our church and our, our culture and our society and our world, like in everything that we live today, these things are intention. And so sometimes we'll have, you know, conversations about like, well, isn't God just the God of love? God just wants us to love everybody, and loving everybody means you don't necessarily hold people accountable. And then there's other people that say, no, there's, there's a standard, and there's right, and there's wrong, and there's truth, and it's all about justice. When the reality is, from Genesis chapter 3, these things have been held in tension. Both things have been true. It's said about Jesus that he's the fullness of grace and truth. John chapter 1 says, He's not the perfect balance of grace and truth. He's not the alternate, you know, based on the day or the moment or the feeling or the situation. Sometimes I'm all grace and sometimes I'm all truth. John tells us that he was the fullness of grace and truth. And I wonder if we took all these things to heart ourselves. What would it mean to think seriously about the severity of our sin? And at the same time, recognize the tenderness of our God. What would it look like to recognize that there's consequences to our actions and we bear the fruit of those consequences and that at the same time there is compassion, not just from God to us, but that we can exhibit that compassion to the people who have wronged us, even in the midst of consequences. What's it look like to live out lives that are fixed on the holiness of God, but yet fully embracing and recognizing the grace of God that's active inside of our lives day by day? This is not a New Testament thing. From the very early pages of Scripture, you see this, but it's just veiled and it's a little bit hidden and it's behind, you know, rituals that we don't understand and and bloodshed that that seems to be excessive. But inside of that, we capture a little bit of the heart of God. So with this background in mind, the Hebrew writer picks it up and he points out that there's a couple of things that shift, major things that begin to shift when Jesus comes. The first is that instead of need for repeated sacrifice, over and over, regular sacrifice taking place, Jesus is the one-time sacrifice. Once and for all. And so no longer is the need for the blood of bulls and and goats. Because once and for all, he laid down his life as the perfect sacrifice once. And it completes what we could never have done over the course of a thousand, you know, two thousand, three thousand years. He accomplished inside of one act of salvation. It's complete, it is finished. It's done. There's nothing that you could do since then that would add to what the cross did, and there's nothing that you could do that takes away from what the cross has done for you. But inside of one act, on one day, on one cross, it's finished. The second is, instead of partial effectiveness, so not only was there repeated sacrifice, but, you know, the extent of those sacrifices can only go so far, and so, you know, you needed to bring a guilt offering or a sin offering, and and so inside of that, you know, again, because of taking sin seriously, there was specific instructions about what to do, and so the sacrifice was only partially effective. Not only would you have to keep coming back, but you would have to do multiple stops for multiple things. 
Now, instead of Jesus, it is fully effective. That the blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. That, that the blood of Jesus comes to bring new life inside of us. The, the blood of Jesus comes to cleanse conscience. So that even our decision-making is changed and transformed. That there's enough inside of what Jesus did, not just to forgive your sins, but to even transform your character. Because of who he is. And then final, maybe this, this just kind of summarizes the other two, but instead of something that was external, that there was a representative sacrifice to symbolically atone for a sin, now there is the in, internal transformation of Jesus. So it's not just what was done for me, but also what is done in me. Not what was simply done on my behalf, but what was done specifically for the transformation of me. So Jesus is the ultimate, the final, the central sacrifice that has the opportunity to cleanse my past and to rewrite my future. Every goat, every bird, every bull pointed to the fact that one day one would give his life once and for all, fully and effectively. That a way could be open to know him, to be in right relationship. These are, again, things that we take for granted, but when you read through the Old Testament and you, and you get a sense for the tension that would always be between the severity of sin and the grace of God and the idea that we had to keep this in front of us, now we take for granted the fact that Jesus died and, and I'm free in him. And that is such a big concept that we can easily just take for granted, especially if we've grown up with it our entire lives. That there's something that can deal with the sin and the guilt and the pain inside of our lives. So at this one, I want to just kind of break this down a little bit more, and Bill's going to come up, and we have the opportunity to talk through this. And um, so congratulations, you get to come talk about sacrifice a little bit. Um, don't, don't you think it's, it's a little easier being in ministry now than it would have been 2,000 years ago, probably? Well, yeah, because, you know, the first thought that comes to my mind is, how in the world would we do that virtually? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, so in okay, a pandemic, go, like... go get your goats and bring uh, them to the living room because we're going to do a sacrifice now. Might be less bloody, though, a little, like, virtual sacrifice, you know, that's taking place, but I want to let you know also, I think it's the associate pastor who would have to do most of the cleanup, <laughs> you know, a- after that. Of and, course. And again, we're not making light of any, any of this, and, yeah. you know, just as far as, like, transitionally, you know, to kind of just... But I think it's worth just kind of acknowledging the fact that this imagery, this language makes us a bit uncomfortable, and it probably should make us a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you know, what, what kind of stands out to you, either in like preparation or even just in what we've thought about so far? Um, what kind of stands out about this imagery that's most vivid inside of your mind or, you know? Well, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier how um, sometimes we, we want to just cut out the Old Testament. And, and, and even, you know, we hear more and more, I think, nowadays um, from authors and speakers that, you know, we don't have to worry about all of that because we have Jesus and, you know, just focus on the New Testament and what Jesus has done for you. And I think when we do that, we don't, we don't understand that our sin costs something. And, and, and when you think about the sacrifices of the Old Testament, um, and the fact that they had something tangible 
to remind them of their sin and remind them of the divide between them and God and that this is what had to happen in order to make things right yeah. uh, in your relationship with God. That, you know, a, a living thing, the life had to be taken from a living thing in order for um, your sins to be washed away. And one of the phrases that gets used sometimes is like salvation history. And, and I wonder just as sometimes let's say inside of our lives with our kids, you know, there has to be like a training period. Let's say if, if God would have sent Jesus right after Adam and Eve sinned, yes, it still would have been once and for all, but I almost wonder if as a people we needed the time to kind of understand the depth of our sin, yes. but also not just the depth of our sin as far as how it affected us, but how the depth of how it affected our relationship with God. And it was only inside of you know, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, it kind of points out, you know, the law, you know, really just magnifies sin, but almost that sin had to be magnified in order for them what Jesus came and did to be, like, fully known and understood, as if we can fully know, know and understand, but, yeah. um, and I wonder if there's something, you know, to that, that it took time, but in that time, there was kind of the communication and the meaning about just the depth of our sin, but also the depth of the love of God to be able to do something about that. I think for me, you know, when you talk about that, um, I always think about the story about Abraham and Isaac, uh, particularly as a dad. You know, the fact that he, because of, uh, of, of the way he, um, you know, God gave him promises and he kind of felt like at times he needed to take on what God already promised to him on himself and take matters into his own hands. And God brought him to a place where he called him to take his son Isaac to be a sacrifice, mm -hmm. to make things right in his relationship with God. And, and Abraham was tested, and he took his son to the, to the place where he was going to offer him as a sacrifice. Yeah. And fortunately, as we know the story, you know, God provided an animal sacrifice in that place. And, um, but to me, that really, that, that gives it even more depth of meaning. Yeah. That, that, you know, that, that we have to be in that place where we're willing to give something up in order to yeah. make our relationship right. And so that, that brings kind of to the next question is, I wonder if there's two dangers inside of this imagery, right? And the one we've already kind of highlighted is we could get lost, we could get distracted, we could get, you know, put off, even offended by the Old Testament, and so therefore we don't read it. But the second, you know, maybe danger, and I don't know if it's equally dangerous or not, but we we clean it up, we like, you know, whitewash it a little bit we make it symbolic and it's like oh jesus was the sacrifice for my sins yes that makes sense that's cool and and i wonder if we need a little bit of the the depth and the severity of the old testament to kind of again make that real and so um i don't know speak to that a little bit you know to either both sides of that or which is more dangerous to either be so offended that we dismiss it or to so clean it up and just make it symbolism that we don't grasp the reality. Well, I think they're, they're both dangerous. And like you said, we already talked about the fact that, you know, when we just cut out the Old Testament, we, we miss all that. And we, we miss what it, what it all means and the weight of our sin. Um, but then when I think about it just being symbolic, yeah, that's a problem. Because it, it, it almost, Jesus almost made, made it easy. I hate to say that. That sounds terrible. Uh, but because we think that, you know, all we have to do is, is ask for forgiveness. And, and, you know, if we're dealing with 
ongoing sin. It's just a matter of, you know, staying connected to God and asking, you know, to be cleansed again with the blood of the Lamb and purify our hearts. And, and, and so it's, it almost becomes routine. Mm-hmm. And we can do it over and over and over again because it's just a matter of asking for forgiveness and, and taking what Jesus did for us, like we've said, once and for all yeah. and using it symbolically. Yeah, I think it was, was it Bonhoeffer that talked about, you know, cheap grace, you know, that it, it becomes, and, and yes, it's absolutely true, it's been freely given, and there's nothing you could do to earn it, deserve it, or to disqualify yourself from it, and all those things are true, but then sometimes that causes us to take it lightly. You know, it's like the kid, you know, that grows up with a silver spoon in his mouth, you know, you don't understand, you know, the, the work it took to get there, not from you, but by the, the person who made possible all that you experience. Um, so to that end, then, the New Testament doesn't leave us open-ended, like all you have to do is believe in Jesus and confess your sins and, and you're good, you're free, do whatever you want. The New Testament then speaks then to a sacrifice that we continue to give. And it's different. It's not necessarily a sacrifice of a, a bull or a, you know, a bird or, or a goat. Um, but there is just kind of something that's expected of us, you know, as well, you know, when you read the New Testament. So uh, Romans talks about, you know, offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Um, First Peter mentions, um, refers to us as living stones that, you know, together we create a, a temple, uh, God's temple. And so I'm a sinner and, and I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. How does that play out in my everyday? What am I doing in my every day to to let the world know that that's who I am and that's you know he is my savior and and I think again I think we lose that we don't realize that there's there's certain uh, we have to live sacrificially we have to give sacrificially we have to to think of ways that we can give back for what he's given to us and and the, the way that he's made for us to salvation. <clears throat> has to be something that the world can see. We have to testify to that each and every day of our lives. Yeah, because if, you know, if, if you've been bought with a price, if you've been redeemed, if you've been cleansed, now you have a new identity, you have a new opportunity that somebody who lived in 700 B.C. didn't have. You know, like you know the forgiveness of sins. You know the, uh, you know the possibility of a transformed heart and life. You know, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God to walk with you and to speak to you. And um, so now we have no excuse. We're not working for the forgiveness of our sins or to be in right relationship with God, but we're working from that new identity. And that somehow the things that weigh heavily upon the heart of God now also weigh heavily on our mm-hmm. hearts as well. So as we transition to communion, the, the application and the imagery is obvious, right? You have the, you know, the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood. Um, but again, this is where it breaks down of, of how we apply the richness of that. Um, the early church was accused of being cannibals because they talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, even inside of the Roman Catholic Church, there's kind of the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is that, it, that these elements literally become the body and blood of Christ. And so different you know, denominations or things have dealt with this um, differently through the years. Some that it's merely symbol. Like, what we do here is just to simply remember 
Some, it's more of a participation in. Um, inside of the Methodist Church, we talk about a means of grace, that it's through this, you know, through receiving these elements, that there could be a channel of grace that's opened up inside of our lives. Um, but I think, again, some of that Old Testament imagery kind of adds to our understanding even of what this meal looks like, you know, for us. Sure. Well, you know, we set it up um, every month that, you know, we're, we're coming to the table like the disciples came to the table, and Jesus is passing the, the wine and passing the bread. And so for a long time, for me personally, I, I, communion to me was being a guest at the Last Supper. And it wasn't until instead I stood or I kneeled at the foot of the cross symbolically in my communion that it really came to life for me. That it's, you know, take yourself out of the upper room and right beneath the bloody body of Jesus and, and know that what he did on the cross, he did for us. And what he did on the cross is as a result of our sin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes... I I feel like sometimes almost we do communion too often because it becomes too much of a, a ritual. It becomes too, you know, easy for us to just do it once a month and, and you know, oh, it's communion Sunday. Here we go again. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I would challenge you this morning as you take communion to be at the foot of the cross and, and to experience the blood of Jesus in a new way um, and let it let it have a deeper meaning for you when you think of, what was done on the cross more so than what was done in the upper room. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's great. And um, so a couple other verses just to leave you with. Um, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is first, you know, uh, Jesus' first appearance publicly in ministry. And John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we continued on from where we began earlier in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, he says, Therefore we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way that has been opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have such a great priest, high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, that your hearts are sprinkled to cleanse you from a guilty conscience, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Then let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good, de- good deeds. And so inside of these moments, we remember the sacrifice that was made once and for all for us. So it's no longer the blood of bulls and goats, but once and for all, fully and effectively, Christ died for you. And our prayer is that each and every time we do this, that this becomes a reminder, not just of the grace of God, but even of the severity of the sin issue inside of our lives and what it means to walk with him in the fullness of new life and hope that Jesus alone can give. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, let's pray together. God, we know that with an event so magnificent as the cross, 
it takes a lifetime for us to fully understand, and maybe perhaps not even until eternity will we understand the weight that you carried for us, the price that you paid. But our desire this morning is to take communion at the foot of the cross, that the price you paid, the offering of yourself that you gave, unleashes just a whole reality of things inside of our lives that we can know you and be known by you, that you have the power alone to forgive sin, that you can draw us close to yourself, that you can transform our character, that you can address the sin issue inside of our lives and you can address the issue of sinning inside of our lives. And so we invite you inside of this moment, would you make your broken body and your shed blood known in a new and in a powerful way inside of our lives this morning? Might this be a time where we give you thanks? Might this be a time where our hearts are open to things that you want to point out? Might this be a marching order for us of what our lives should be from this point forward? Would you come and meet us even inside of these moments? as we share together the meal that you have given us. For it's in that name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.